From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. You don't see these wonderful things in nature if you're not outside in it. And to me, maple syrup is just one more opportunity to be outside immersed in nature. This week on our show, we join Shane Gibson of Sycamore Land Trust while we listen in on the learning and fun of Maple Syrup Day at a local elementary school. And we have an audio postcard from a backyard chicken coop tour. And we've got a story from Harvest Public Media about Midwestern farming communities struggling to shore up infrastructure ahead of spring rains. That's all just ahead on Earth Eats. Here's Renee Reed with some food news. Hi, Renee. Hello, Kate. Dicamba-based weed killers are at the center of a federal jury trial that started Monday in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. The trial aims to determine whether Monsanto and BASF are the reason Missouri's largest peach farm is on the brink of collapse. Bader Farms has been growing peaches in Dunklin County since the late 1980s. But a lawyer representing the farm told jurors it's struggling to stay afloat today. He says that's because dicamba-based herbicides sprayed on neighboring fields drifted onto the peach orchard. Ag giants Monsanto and BASF are makers of those herbicides and defendants in the trial. Their lawyers told jurors that the damage to the orchard has nothing to do with dicamba. They cite a soil fungus, ice storms, and hail as some of the many causes. Each party is expected to call on research experts and company executives to testify over the next three weeks. This is the first of many dicamba-related lawsuits to go to trial. They say don't cry over spilled milk, but what about a massive milk merger? When the country's largest milk producer, Dean Foods, filed for bankruptcy late last year, the country's largest dairy cooperative, Dairy Farms of America, DFA, stepped in to discuss a merger. Absorbing Dean's operations could give DFA a more than 60% share of fluid milk sales in markets like Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa. The move triggered federal antitrust regulators to investigate if a merger could lead to an excessive concentration of milk buyers in parts of the country and a potential loss of competition in the raw milk market. Dairy Farmers of America already buys some of the milk its own marketing arm sells, and some dairy farmers and antitrust experts say the acquisition of Dean would only exacerbate that conflict of interest. The move could make it impossible for small dairy farmers to survive in an industry already in decline for years. Milk consumption has decreased by 40% in the past four decades, as has the number of milk processing plants. Milk prices have bottomed out, shuttering more and more dairy farms, even in dairy-heavy states like Wisconsin, which lost 500 dairy farms in 2017. At the same time, major corporations like Walmart and Kroger have introduced cheaper in-store brands and their own bottling plants, pressuring prices and in some cases reducing business for processors like Dean. DFA and a group of bondholders are expected to bid on Dean's assets next month. Thanks to Corinne Ruff and Taylor Killo for those stories. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. After last spring's heavy rains and flooding, many Midwestern communities are still living with damaged water infrastructure. And as Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports, some still don't know how they'll afford to protect themselves from more damages this year. Finally. After nearly a year, 
the water is mostly gone from Brett Adams' farmland near the town of Peru in southeast Nebraska. He can get in his silver pickup and take us to the levee, past the stubbly remains of 2018's crop. So the water just drained off of here uh, a couple weeks ago. So, like right here, the water would have been, I don't know, eight foot deep probably. Where there's we're still, at. I mean, there's still water here. Yeah, there's a yeah, a little bit. I mean, this looks great to me considering what it looked like. He's on the local levee board, which manages the town's nearly eight miles of Missouri Riverbed. And it's a full-time, unpaid job these days. Farming was the easy part. I don't get to do the farming part much anymore. It's all meetings, business side of it. Adam spends his time mostly trying to answer one question. Where will a town of 800 people get tens of millions of dollars to fix its levees in time for spring? We have a very small level of protection. You know, you you get above flood stage or something, the water's going to come running right back in here. Typically, the Army Corps of Engineers would fund repairs through its federal rehabilitation program. But Adams says there are some costs that come with complying with its rules. Well, we're a very small levee district with an annual income of less than $30,000. We decided to use the funds fully on fixing our deficiencies because that's what's really going to protect you. And that meant quitting the program or becoming inactive until they could get back up to code. That was a few years back before any talk of bomb cyclones or 500-year floods. Matt Krajowski, the readiness branch chief at the Omaha District Army Corps of Engineers, says going inactive really limits how the government can help if there's a disaster. Inactive means if there's an event, then we cannot rehabilitate the structure. But Adams and the Army Corps agree that Peru's levy didn't stand a chance against the floods, with or without repairs. The Corps still can't make exceptions to policy. Only Congress can do that. Nobody here wants to walk over to those folks and and say, hey, you know what, sorry, we can't do anything, right? So we're bound by the law. Peru isn't the only community on the hook for millions in federally owned infrastructure repairs after 2019's wet spring. The Gearing Fort Laramie Irrigation Canal collapsed in western Nebraska last July, leaving over 100,000 crop acres to shrivel in the sun for two months. This district has been delivering water for 96 years. And we have never called on the state or the government to help us with it. That's Rick Preston, who manages the irrigation district. Now all of a sudden we're in a situation we need some help, and we can't get nobody to step up. He says the Bureau of Reclamation, which owns the canal, is trying to court money from other federal agencies with leftover funds. But that process takes months, if not years. And we're in a situation we can't wait. And if I don't get it put back together, then these farms are going to go without water one more year. And anyway, that money would be a loan. So Preston would have to raise water prices for farmers to pay it back. The ag economy is so poor right now. If we borrow the money and we have to increase our own M $10 an acre, Katie, bar the door, because all hell's going to break loose. You, you wouldn't hear the end of it. Preston says he's explained the situation to his elected officials over and over. And while he says they have sympathy and want to help, those feelings haven't translated into any real progress yet. Every road I've turned and went down, it's, it's a dead end. On the other side of the state, Adam says he's practically got his representatives on speed dial. You know, you're at a peak, you've made contacts, you've talked to congressional people, and you think things are going to happen, and then all of a sudden nothing does, and you're down in a valley. So, you know, it's kind of a little roller coaster. Congressman Adrian Smith represents Adam's community and told me in an email that he's still trying to help wherever he can. But Adams doesn't have any more time to talk about it. He's off to another meeting. 
he leaves me with why he made some time to go on a drive with yet another reporter. This, this flood will break people. I, I don't want to sit around and dwell on, you know, this happened, blame, blame. Let's move forward and figure out how to fix it and how to make it not happen again. Which brings him to the only option he really has, to keep riding that valley of uncertainty and look for the peaks wherever he can find them. Christina Stella, Harvest Public Media. Hear more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. The Tour de Coupe is a yearly backyard chicken coop tour in Raleigh, North Carolina. The tour benefits urban ministries of Wake County, a local nonprofit providing food, shelter, and medicine to people in crisis. Producer Josephine McRobbie sends an audio postcard from this year's tour. Silent night, hens tucked in, starlight on snow. I'm Karen Weiberg. And I am the author of Chicken Haiku and the owner of the house where we're showing all the chickens right now. I'm Dawn Rozo, and I'm an artist, visual artist, and collage illustrator. Justin Miller, we are in my backyard, which is inhabited by eight chickens and two potbelly pigs. My name is Melissa Koopman, and I'm a volunteer organizer with Tour de Coop. Raleigh's own urban chicken coop tour, um, benefiting urban ministries of Wake County. You know, chickens can be true pets. They all have personalities. They all have individual likes and dislikes. Some of them are very anxious. Some of them are very calm. Some of them like to go in and roost at night. Some of them stay out to the bitter end, like teenagers. (laughs) They have their little cliques. I tell people that are like a group of high school girls living in the backyard. So certain ones like other ones. Every night they go and sleep in the same spot, in the same order. Hey girls! Look what I have! We are in um, an area of Raleigh called Five Points. We're about five minutes from Raleigh's true downtown core. Chickens need to be dry. They need to be um, protected from heat and cold, and they need good ventilation. So no matter what the coop looks like, as long as it does that, they're happy. Chickens are wonderful because I have a food source right here that has a very low carbon footprint. A lot of what I feed them comes from my very own garden. A lot of the fertilizer that goes back to my garden comes from them. I compost it and it goes back to the garden. Anyone who knows chickens knows that there is a concept called chicken math. What chicken math is, is when you go out and you say you're going to get three or four, you wind up actually getting eight or ten. I decided I w- there were certain types, certain breeds that I wanted to add to, to my flock, and that's how I, orig- how I went from four to eight in the beginning. Of the seven that lay eggs, I have seven different color eggs that are produced from, from chocolate brown to bright white. I get about a half a dozen eggs a day. I'm known in the area as the egg guy, so my neighbors, I have a a rotating list. I leave eggs out on the porch for them. They leave money in my mailbox. So in terms of sustainability, it's actually a a pet that that pays some rent here, which is nice. So I got chickens, and I knew about the Tour de Coupe. I had heard about it, and so we went on the Tour de Coupe one year and looked at all the coops and then figured out what we wanted to build. And then the next year, we decided to be a coop host on the Tour de Coupe. You will just see creative coops, some of them very high-end and gorgeous and architectural wonders, and some of them, you know, made of recycled materials or very homemade, such as my coop. 
our houses represent not only chickens, but oftentimes beehives, gardens, unique sustainability features. So you might see rain barrels or vermicomposting with worms. Um, you will see music, there will be food trucks, there will be artists, authors. Every year is unique and different. We worked hard for about a year to pull it together, get it designed, and it's awesome. The poems and the art really work together. They so really work together. I can't tell you how many evenings that we've just spent sitting out here watching them free range and just been amused. So as a writer, it was just a natural thing to start writing about them. And haiku just seemed like the perfect way to capture chickens. <laughs> They are incredibly stupid acting, intelligent creatures. <laughs> they look at me as the mama hen. They know when I'm outside, it usually means snacks or food or something good's gonna happen. Scratch, scratch, scratch. Digging for gold flecks. When do dreams hatch? Thanks to producer Josephine McRobbie for that audio postcard. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at like to use maple syrup on your pancakes, you're probably familiar with how costly it can be, especially compared to the Hungry Jack variety that's made with basically maple-flavored corn syrup. Last winter at Unionville Elementary School just outside of Bloomington, Indiana, the students had a hands-on lesson with maple syrup production, and they possibly came to appreciate that high price tag. Producer Alex Chambers was there and sent back this sound portrait. Um, I think we sent home um, 125 spiles. A, sm a spile is a, like a, a hollow tube where you will, um, that will let the sap flow out of the, of the tree and into your bucket. I'm Shane Gibson, Environmental Education Director with Sycamore Land Trust. Sycamore Land Trust is a nonprofit, and our, our mission is to conserve land in southern Indiana and to connect people to nature. As the education director, I get the good fortune to do a lot of the connecting people to nature. These wooden spiles are made from elderberry, that I just snipped some elderberry from my house. Elderberry and sumac have a soft pith in the middle, and so you can take a uh, heat up like a hot wire. It should be hot enough. I use my gloves. And we're just going to burn out the pit. 
burn out the pith. Get that hot wire, it just burns out the center, pushes right through that really soft pith. And that didn't go all the way through, but we have one that's completed and so then you have your spile or like a straw, you could use it for a straw, uh, made very quickly from elderberry. And that's your spile that would go in the tree and would then direct the sap into your collection container. They, may, they probably brought in 60, 70 gallons of sap. Um, we'll never get through that today. Um, I brought in my portable, maple, portable evaporator to then demonstrate how you can cook it at home in your backyard. I just have a 55 gallon drum and I went to um, a hardware store and purchased a, an adapter kit that you can get for those to make them into a wood burning stove. I cut a rectangle out of the top that would fit a, a pan that is used in um, like a buffet style pan I got from a restaurant supply store. So that pan fits right in there and so now you have your um, one pan evaporator. What we have going on is we have our main pan evaporating. We have another pot on the back of the cooker that's heating up the sap so that when we go from the, we take that warm sap on the pot and put it into our boiling pan so we don't lose our boil. The key thing for making maple syrup is keep that fire hot in a rolling boil. Um, the faster you can get that uh, water evaporated off, the quicker you're going to get to syrup. Um, and I've had too many experiences of getting distracted and you let your fire go away and then you're there all day long. So then we also have a Coleman stove showing the finishing process. So we have some sap that we're uh, trying to finish to syrup. So we have our, our different ways to show students that they can use just a spatula to dip in and just do a, a visual if it's syrup but if it comes off like a sheet of paper. We have a candy thermometer. Um, and we also have a hydrometer that measures the sugar content. So there's different ways that you can finish it. We're also showing them uh, how to bottle the syrup and why we turn the bottles on their side when it's hot. And we have then a tasting session uh, area so they can taste the sap and taste some finished syrup. It's, it has, it's not like the normal syrup you would taste after it's been like through the fire. It, I don't know how to explain it. It's like so it kind of tastes like the I don't ice after sucking on a popsicle during the summer. A li it's like a it's like a mixture of like three fourths of sugar and like a half a cup of uh, water. I could just taste like how the ice does after sucking on it for a while. I I did really like the sap. It tastes like water with juice. I notice with the syrup, it kind of tastes like it's almost like it was smoked at one point. Which kind of makes sense, because, I mean, you require a stove, hot stove to cook it. Well, the sap... I did really like the sap. It kind of tastes like it's kind of uh, what's it? bitter. I, I, I like the sap. And the maple syrup was also really good as well. So um, Maple Syrup Day came about because last year I worked at a, a school at Evansville, Evansville Montessori, and they organized what they called a sugar bush, so, sugar bush Social. And we really modeled today off of that first experience there and also modeled it a lot off of my experiences of doing Maple Syrup Camp at Bradford Woods and, and the Maple Syrup programs at Southeast Way Park in Indianapolis. And um, so in, working, in having that experience in Evansville, I came to Mrs. Albright and I said, I think this could work well for your school what do you think and so 
she was willing to work together and give this a try. And we brought in Bradford Woods staff to have extra teachers doing this, the history stations of Native American history. And so we have three stations here. Pioneer history. The first stations you're able to practice drilling a tree um, using a hand driller. And then the next stations you're going to practice how to um, hammer a spile. We are talking about how back when the Native Americans used tools, how they had to use rocks and just things that they found in natural resources around them, whereas the pioneers have made tools such as hand drills and different things like that and spiles as well to help collect the sap and copper buckets and things. My name is Katie, Katie Haymaker, and I am from Bradford Woods. I'm Neil Quintanar, I'm from Bradford Woods. And the third station there with Beth, we're going to see, uh, this is what they call a yoke, where the pioneers introduce a yoke is where uh, we put it on our shoulders, and then two buckets on each side that will help us carry the, uh, the sap that we just collected. Okay, there you go, and like that. Okay, is that cool? are you excited to to try on these machines? Yes. Okay, so we're going to divide you into three groups. Maybe the event here today is just teaching the kids um, about Native Americans and how they discovered maple syrup, and then the process of the pioneers coming over and bringing their tools. All right, your turn. Kind of push from the top. Sure. He's de- I think he's doing all push it from the top and now. Um, right now they are actually um, there's a group that's. Um, uh, hand drilling a tree. Okay. So they are turning the knobs and we're teaching them how to um, drill the, the maple tree. And then the next group, um, how to put on this pile. It's made up of metal, but sometimes it can be just plastic and then sometimes it can also be wood. Okay. So they're going to hammer it into a tree. And then the third group there, um, they're trying on the yoke, so uh, the yoke is where it's like uh, uh, something that you put in your in your in your shoulders, and then that will help you bring the bucket. Can you do it again? Yes, yes. If there's some extra. Um, see, there's no sawdust. Miss Albright sent home a questionnaire. Do you have maple trees? Would you like to help collect sap for our maple syrup day? Students brought back the forms, and uh, Unionville Elementary and Sycamore Land Trust bought spiles and taps to send home. I think we sent home um, 125 spiles. So families really got involved. I know some kids are cooking at home. Um, they've brought in, they, may, they probably brought in 60, 70 gallons of sap. We'll never get through that today. Um, and we, in each class, I came in and did an in-class session with each class to kind of give them, to try to give them some knowledge and confidence to say, hey, I could do this at home. Let's give it a try. What do I have to lose? If Shane can do it, I could probably pull this off too. So I need, uh, Ms. Underwood, if you could uh, select two volunteers for us. Mm, how about Hank and Abby? All right, so we need, you're gonna come inside the cone, uh, cones. One of you go over here with Bray. We need help. One of the jobs when you're uh, when you are making maple syrup is splitting wood. I like to use small pieces because they burn hotter and faster, and you can keep that fire really hot. So um, 
when you use these big hammers, you don't have to swing them real hard. The, the, weight will, the weight will help do the work for you. So just keep your fingers back from the edge, maybe up around the tape. And I'm going to hold the axe and you move your hand back a tiny bit. Yep. Ready? There we go. And then you get to that point, you can just pull it apart. Nice. All right. Thanks for your help. That helped us Thank out you. a lot. The thing I love about maple syrup, and I, that I've loved that some of these kids have gone out and done it, is that this is a time of year when many people spend their days indoors. And this is a great time of year. Maple syrup's a great activity to get you outside in a time of year that you may not usually be outside. And this time of year is a great time to hear the sandhill cranes flying over. I was tapping trees a couple years ago and two bald eagles came flying over. One was upside down. They were kind of going back and forth and the one on the bottom actually hit a limb in the woods that we were tapping in, fell to the forest floor, kind of got its wits about it and then took off again. All happened in about 10 seconds. But I use that as an example of you don't see these wonderful things in nature if you're not outside in it. And to me, maple syrup is just one more opportunity to be outside immersed in nature. It's really been a good partnership over the last two school years working out here. They really embrace being outside. When you, it takes a long time, and usually the first time you, har you harvest the sap, you get the most. It, well, it was one day, and then we got like half a, half a gallon. They probably brought in 60, 70 gallons of sap. Half a half a gallon, because we had half gallon jugs on there. Um, and not, not everything we do is outside, but just nature-based learning. And it's not all science. You know, we're doing cultural history here today. We're doing healthy eating. And a lot of what we do in wild edibles type things, that's about healthy lifestyles. And being outside carrying five gallon buckets of sap, that's exercise. It's a lot of hard work. It like tastes like honey with just, yeah, yeah, more sugar. And it's really fulfilling at the end of the day to have a stash of maple syrup. That was Shane Gibson from Sycamore Land Trust. We also heard from outdoor educators Katie Hamaker and Neil Kinitar from Bradford Woods and Unionville Elementary students Reese, Jason, Zachary, Arlo, Landon, and Julian. The best weather conditions for harvesting maple sap is when the overnight lows are in the 20s and the highs are in the 40s. Around here, that tends to happen sometime in January or February. If you have sugar maples in your yard, keep an eye on the forecast and consider tapping your trees this year. It takes about 10 gallons of sap to make one quart of syrup, depending on the sugar content of your particular maple sap. Maple Day is part of Unionville Elementary School's EARTH program. EARTH stands for Environment, Art, Resources, Technology, and Health. Learn more about the program and see photos from the event on our website. We've also got some links to recipes using maple syrup. That's at eartheats.org. Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, D. 
Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Melissa Koopman, Justin Miller, Karn Weiberg, Dawn Rozo, Shane Gibson, Katie Hamaker, Neil Kentonar, and everyone at Unionville Elementary School. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio. 